Hello, my wonderful Facebook friends. It's great to be with you. A couple of little technical glitches as I was trying to sign on, but it looks like I am here and ready to roll. Thanks for being with me and for hanging in today at 4 p.m., perhaps maybe 4.03 or 4. Uh, but here we are and glad that you're able to join me, whether you're joining me live uh, as we're recording this or you're watching it a little bit later here on my Facebook page or on the West Irwin Church of Christ Facebook pages or even at our website at westirwin.com under social media and resources and uh, live streaming page under the video archive it'll show there later on it'll also show on the big blue box uh, on Sunday nights at 6 p.m. and so you're welcome to do that uh, have a few more lessons here in this series on Mark the Action Gospel uh, we'll see this uh, study take us through the month of May until we get to uh, around Memorial Day weekend. That's my plan. Uh, but as we look at these last three chapters, Mark 14, 15, and 16, we realize that this is exactly why Mark wrote his gospel. You could probably say that certainly about the gospel of John as well. Uh, but for Mark, he is uh, taking the short road to get here and uh, especially uh, focusing on uh, the death of Christ as he discusses all the events that take place to make that happen, starting with our passage today here in Mark uh, 14. So I hope that you have a Bible handy. I hope that you can follow along and that you'll be reminded of this greatest of all blessing of ours, um, the death of Jesus Christ. We'll be looking at that over these next few weeks. And uh, then, of course, the study culminating <clears throat> with the great story of the resurrection of Jesus and the empty tomb that is found in Mark chapter 16. The greatest action in the action gospel, as I call Mark in this study, is Jesus giving his life on the cross. Like all four gospel writers, and perhaps especially the Apostle John, who spends so much of his gospel during these events right here, uh, Mark gives us a considerable amount of writing to the story of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord, especially the events leading up to his death. But before he takes Jesus to Calvary, Mark takes us to Bethany, uh, and then later to Gethsemane, and we'll see that uh, wonderful, amazing, incredible, touching, sacrificial, priestly prayer of Jesus um, in Mark 14 next week. So first of all, we realize that Jesus is anointed for death. He says in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, uh, that the Son of Man came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost, as he talks to Zacchaeus. Uh, as he talks to his disciples in Matthew chapter 20, who are fighting over which one's the greatest, uh, Jesus tells them, look, the, the greatest among you is the one who will serve. The first will be the last. And he says, uh, just as I came, uh, not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That is really the purpose why Jesus came. He came to give his life for us, for you and for me. And these events here in Mark 14 uh, are what lead us to that moment at Calvary when he finally breathes his last and uh, commits his soul and his life into the hands of the Father and announces it is finished. Um, and so we look at this uh, passage in Mark chapter 14, and it's, uh, it's interesting because we have a few different accounts of this, uh, of what happens here. But let's go ahead and read it from Mark 14, beginning at verse 1. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. 
And the chief priests and the teachers of the law or scribes were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. Isn't it interesting that that was their concern? Uh, you get a pretty good handle that they had given up all of their scruples, all of their ethics, all of their morals uh, to take care of what they consider to be the urgent need of getting rid of Jesus. Um, it's just amazing uh, the horrible sins that they commit in order to accomplish what they want, which is to kill Jesus without stirring up the crowd against them. Amazing. Verse 3, while he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Other passages give us a quote from Jesus from the book of Deuteronomy that, that says, uh, the poor you'll always have with you. And it's interesting because in that quote in Deuteronomy, um, it's a little bit different uh, direction than what Jesus takes here. Here he's justifying uh, what this woman has done. And according to John chapter 12, the woman is Mary, um, the brother, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. Uh, but in, in, as the Moses records it in the law, he says the poor you'll always have with you, so you need to take care of them. <laughs> but here Jesus says the poor you'll always have with you. And so remember that that is not your only task. And I think we need to remember that. That is something that is significant. What, what Mary does here, many would consider a waste. In fact, Judas Iscariot considered it a waste although he had ulterior motives. And perhaps the other disciples too wondered why this was done, uh, so that uh, they rather sell it and, and help the poor. There are so many things like that that we could do in our churches, uh, which would give us, yes, more cash to give to the poor. We could sell our facilities. Uh, we could uh, uh, relieve all of our staff. Uh, we could leave the ongoing uh, long-term work of the church and throw it all out for the sake of helping the poor that we have today. We have a large budget at West Irwin Church of Christ, and thankfully so. We have wonderful, generous people that make that happen. But we're also in downtown Tyler and have been uh, for almost 100, well, 135 years, uh, 136 years this year. And, um, and there are lots of, of poor around us, right, in our own immediate area. And West Irwin is very committed to helping them, and we do, uh, we do. Uh, we have an active benevolent ministry that we put a lot of money and resources and people into every single week uh, as we hand out food. We used to hand out clothing. We've put that on hold for now because of the pandemic and the dangers involved, uh, the risk involved in sharing clothing, but we're, we're, we'll get back to that, we will. Uh, but at the same time, we also realize that that's not the only call of the church. If we wanted to, we could spend 100% of our budget simply on helping the poor in the area of Tyler and the surrounding area. Uh, but God has called us to do that. He's called us to do a lot of other things. And Jesus affirms this woman and her sacrifice and the sacrifice that they all made uh, by not using this money for something else. Worship is like that. Worship is wasteful. 
whether you're just talking about money or uh, resources or time, uh, time spent in worship, you think, well, that could have been, you could have been doing something else. Uh, you could have been studying the Bible or uh, more likely you could have been helping somebody, you know, work on their house or mow their yard or uh, help them find uh, something that they needed. And granted, there are there are things sometimes that we do that that have an urgency to them to where it takes us away uh, from uh, time of worship. But we have to be careful with that because we could do that all the time and the poor would always be there. And that's what Jesus says. And so it's amazing the perspective that he puts on this, because we know that Jesus was very committed to helping the poor. And it, this is not an either-or question. <laughs> the church is not called to either help the poor and do service projects or spend time in worship and Bible study. That's not the call. We don't have to make that choice. In fact, the calling of Scripture is a very strong commandment to do both. To do both. A lot of it has to do with what one writer years ago called model of the church. What is the model of the church? When you describe the church, what do you say? Uh, perhaps for some, it is exactly what uh, the disciples complained about here. It's helping the poor. And that's a great, great thing. For others, it may be what Jesus talks about here, which is worship and being willing to, even extravagantly, uh, pay God the, the awesome reverence and worship that he, he deserves. Um, certainly for others, there, there are other models of the church uh, that they might follow, again, specific Bible study and growth, uh, being willing uh, to do the things that God has called us to do in his scripture that the church is called uh, to do, helping families, uh, helping those visiting people in the hospital, and uh, being with those who have lost loved ones. All of those things are things that the church needs to spend its effort on, and there are more. But those are not the only works of the church. And that's what I think the point Jesus makes here uh, to his disciples. How does he respond? Leave her alone, verse 6 says of Mark 14. You, why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over uh, to them. Again, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 15, and, um, and he tells them, he reminds them, the poor you'll always have with you, but she's doing this to prepare me for my burial. And that should have caused lights to go off in the heads of all of the apostles right there, because he had been telling them, as we have seen in the Gospel of Mark, that the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem, he will be betrayed, he will be placed into the hands of sinners, and they will crucify him, and then on the third day he'll rise again. Well, now he puts uh, a time on that. He says, she is anointing me in preparation for my burial. Again, John chapter 12 discusses, I think, the same event. And he names Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, as being uh, present there. 
and Mary being the one who uh, gives Jesus this anointing. Uh, there's another event in Luke chapter 7 uh, that seems to be different from all of these. And uh, in Luke 7, the uh, Jesus is anointed by a sinful woman at the home of Simon the Pharisee, not Simon the leper. And that's the one where she uh, washes his feet uh, with her tears, uh, dries them with her hair, uh, and continually kisses his feet in an act of humility and gratitude, something that Simon the Pharisee thought was horrible. And Jesus asks him that very haunting question, do you see this woman? Uh, and he hadn't seen her at all. And sometimes we have to ask ourselves, do I see that person who is in such great need and who is doing all the good that they can do? And yet somehow, some reason for, for some reason, I feel better than they are uh, because of less sin in my mind or greater works for God in my mind. And none of those things matter to God. Uh, he sees them and we should too. Uh, that's a different event, I believe, in Luke 7. Uh, but here in Mark 14 uh, and Matthew 26, we read about this. And John chapter 12, um, Mary is listed as the name. And so I realize there are some things to work out there. But, um, but I think those are talking about uh, this same event. And, and so Jesus affirms her and he, um, he uh, rebukes the apostles who wanted to sell what she had given and supposedly give it to the poor. But we know that Judas Iscariot had a different motive in mind. His motive was to pocket a good part of that. And uh, when Jesus did this, it seems like was, it was the last straw for him. And that's when he goes to the leaders of the Jews and he says, hey, I'm on the inside. What will you give me? And we know that the ultimate price that was paid was 30 pieces of silver, which he tried to give back before he killed himself after causing, bringing about the arrest and ultimate death of Jesus Christ. Um, it is an amazing, amazing story. Uh, but the, the wheels are turning. And Jesus has been anointed uh, for death for our sins. Uh, and and all of these events are part of making that happen. But before it does, um, we read some events in John chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16. Ultimately, the prayer in chapter 17. In John 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Um, and in, um, in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we read of this incident where Jesus partakes of the Passover with his disciples, his apostles, the night before his death. Um, Mark 14, beginning at verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Now, I've done a lot of study on the Lord's Supper. In fact, my Doctor of Ministry project thesis delved into uh, the biblical and historical and theological backgrounds and foundation of the Lord's Supper. Wonderful study. I'm very blessed to have had uh, the opportunity to do that and to lead a study group from Woodland West Church of Christ in Arlington, Texas, through that study. Um, but one of the questions was, is, is that what this is? Is it a Passover meal? Because in John, there's some indication that, well, not too sure, because in John, there's some uh, differences where, uh, remember, the Jewish leaders go to Pilate and they don't go inside because they, they don't want to become unclean and not be able to partake of the Passover meal. 
Um, but I think there's some uh, explanations for all of that. Some have suggested that what Jesus partakes with his disciples is not the Passover. That would be the next night. And, uh, and that uh, this was one of the fellowship meals that they uh, did. I, I don't think you can say that because it's uh, clearly stated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that that's what this is. They were partaking of the Passover meal. Others, and you can do more study on this independently if you like, uh, others said that there were uh, different calendars in use at the time and that some of the Jewish leaders used a different calendar than Jesus used here to partake of the Lord's of the Passover feast with his disciples. Um, and I again, I, I think there's some questions there and I encourage you to uh, uh, to look into that. And if you like, you can interact with me some via email uh, or text message and let me know or Facebook message. That'd be great. That'd be great. Clearly. Mark says, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples in verse 13 and said, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Jesus knew how this was all going to play out. He will show you a large room upstairs furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. When evening came, uh, so the disciples left in verse 16, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. We read in the Gospel of John that uh, Peter kind of saddles up to the Apostle John, who is the one closest to Jesus, and said, find out who he's talking about, find out who he's talking about. Uh, but Jesus uh, tells them, I'm not sure that everyone realized it. Because when Judas does leave, um, the others think that maybe he's going to buy some more supplies that we need for the Passover or for something else. And, and uh, not unusual for the man who kept the money to have to go and run an errand involving uh, a purchase or something. But in this case, what uh, Judas was doing was going to tell the Jewish leaders, okay, here's the plan. Um, and they would meet later in the Garden of Gethsemane, as you know. Well, this, the significant things about this shared meal together are especially seen in Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, it's just a, uh, uh, the, the passage in Mark continues on and, and Jesus continues speaking with his disciples and talks about uh, Peter's betrayal. Ultimately, they find themselves in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, uh, and Jesus prays and Mark, the way Mark puts it, is very uh, packed emotionally with the wording uh, that he uses. But what do we get from this? Well, we see that clearly in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus is being described as the Passover 
lamb. Uh, Jesus, in, in John's gospel, Jesus is portrayed as the one who is killed when the other Passover lambs are being killed. Here, Jesus is the one uh, who partakes of that last Passover with his apostles. And in doing so, he institutes the Lord's Supper. Of course, as you know, Paul will speak to this as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and talk about the teaching of the Lord's Supper to the church, the church at Corinth in modern-day Greece, who had so messed up the Lord's Supper that Paul would even say, I don't know what you're eating, but it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating, because they weren't considering one another. This event that, that um, celebrates a sacrifice, the sacrifice of the Son of God, and yet the individuals in Corinth were unwilling to wait for one another and sacrifice a little bit of their time and consideration for one another. Paul says, you've missed it. You've missed it. You may have your mind and your heart set on Jesus and you see him on the cross and on take you back to that day and all of those things, but they weren't looking around, which was a very important part of the Passover. As the Jews celebrated the Passover, they were called to look up to God and to the Father. Uh, to acknowledge the one true and living God. They were called to look back to their history, to salvation history, to all the times when God had cared for them and seen them through the difficulties they had experienced. They were also called to look around, to look around that table that they partook of the Passover uh, at and the family and friends that were gathered there in that small home at, around that table together, observing this most important event in uh, the Jewish year. Uh, of course, the Day of Atonement important as well, but the Passover was something that really is when the nation of Israel began and they celebrated their deliverance from Egyptian bondage and they really became an independent people for the first uh, time. They were called to look up to God. They were called to look back to their salvation history. They were called to look around and to be considerate of each other. Uh, but they were also called to look ahead, to look forward to, with faith, knowing that God would continue to provide for them, knowing that God would continue to deliver them. The God who had delivered them in the past during the Passover, and they told that story, as you know, every year. Um, and they would have a child ask, what is the meaning of this? And they would tell the story. And I believe that's why we partake of the Lord's Supper every Sunday. I think Acts 20, verse 7 uh, on one of Paul's journeys, it says that he was, while he was in Troas on the first day of the week, the church gathered together to break bread uh, and to commemorate this event of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I, I think there's every indication to believe, and historically we see this as well, that the early church partook of the Lord's Supper every single Sunday to celebrate the day of resurrection and to remember the cross that brought about their salvation and our salvation. Uh, all of those things we, we see in this passage. Jesus takes bread and he blesses it and he breaks it and he gives it to them. And they all eat and he says, take it and eat it, this is my body. And he takes the cup and he pours it out before them just as his blood is. And he calls on them to drink from it, all of them, and they do. And they drink that uh, fruit of the vine and they and Jesus says, this is my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As we partake of that Lord's Supper every Sunday, we remember Jesus 
and his death, burial, and resurrection. And like they did during the Passover times, we look up to God and we look up to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Uh, and we look back and we remember that event that brings about our salvation and all the other times when God was there to deliver us. Uh, but yes, we also look around and consider each other, and that's what they were not doing in 1 Corinthians 11. But we also look ahead. The Lord's Supper is a very forward-looking thing. Remember, Jesus says, as uh, Paul records it in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, that we every time we partake of this uh, Lord's Supper, uh, we proclaim uh, the death of Jesus Christ until he comes again. And so there's a great forward-looking part to the Lord's Supper uh, as well. All of these things are the final preparations for the death of Christ. The special anointing that he has, uh, ultimately the, the anger and disappointment and uh, frustration, frustration of Judas Iscariot, who finally says, that's it, I'm out. Uh, I, am, I am going to do this. And he does it and sells his master out. And, um, and then Jesus, of course, is gathering around uh, the table with his disciples and shares this very important meal with them. But in doing so, changes it forever and changes it for us who um, uh, remember uh, not just that God's salvation history in Old Testament times, whether it's the Passover or all the other great deliverances that God brought his people but we remember this ultimate deliverance. We remember, as in the words of Hebrews, Christ died once for all for us, so that through his blood, not the blood of any bull or goat or any other animal, but through the blood of the very Son of God, we could be forgiven and saved as well. Throughout the rest of, of chapter 14, Jesus continues to prepare his disciples, as we'll see next Sunday, warning them that they're all going to fall away uh, warning Peter especially, and a wonderful passage in Luke that we'll mention next week uh, where Jesus affirms Peter and even tells him, you will get through this, and when you do, you need to strengthen the others. An amazing passage. Uh, but then, of course, that time in the garden uh, when Jesus uh, is there alone with his Father and, um, and prays not to be delivered uh, if, at any cost but prays that if that's possible, that would be great. But ultimately, ultimately, the prayer of Jesus for you and for me is thy will be done. Uh, I look forward to sharing that great, great passage with you as we look at the rest of Mark 14 next Sunday. God bless.